I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. We begin tonight by introducing you to Brian Pendleton, a philanthropist from Los Angeles who's given his community a very, very great gift. Mr. Pendleton funded a clinic that provides men who have sex with men access to Truvada, the drug that's used as a pre-exposure prophylaxis as a means of preventing the transmission of the HIV virus. And then Dennis Agnos from Face to Face right here in Sonoma County will be here with us to tell us the latest on this year's Art for Life event. And be sure to stay tuned because we just might have a couple of tickets to give away. And finally, we'll be joined by Sean McEntee, the relatively new communications associate from the Matthew Shepard Foundation. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, August 23rd, 2015. I have found Outbeat Radio News. Your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. The Independent reports that over 49% of British men between the ages of 18 and 24 identify something as other than 100% heterosexual when they were asked to place themselves on Alfred Kinsey's sexuality scale. A recent survey by YouGov interviewed 1,632 people ranging from 18 to over 60 years of age. Of that number, younger people reported being more sexually fluid. Less than half of the 18 to 24-year-olds said that they considered themselves completely straight, compared to 43% who said they are bisexual. Meanwhile, 89% of the respondents over 60 years of age said they are either completely straight or completely gay. Researchers also found almost a quarter of the respondents between 18 and 39 years old reported having at least one homosexual experience compared to just 9% of those over 60. Interestingly enough, more men reported having had a gay experience than women. One-fifth of males, compared to just 14% of females, said they had partaken in a sexual experience with someone of the same sex. Will Dahlgreen, a data journalist from YouGov, said, More than anything, it indicates an interestingly open-minded approach to sexuality. And some gay users of the now-famous Ashley Madison Adultery website are fearing for their lives, since the hack exposes the names and locations of users living in countries where homosexuality is illegal, and in some cases punishable by death. Ashley Madison owns gay domains like Man Crunch and We Know Down Low, and members of both clubs are among 37 million account holders whose sexual preferences have now been made public by this week's hack. Homosexuality is still illegal in roughly 75 countries, including several states in the Middle East, Africa, Southeast Asia, and most of the Caribbean. Placing sensitive information in the public domain puts gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people living in those regions at risk. Over 50 accounts have been found from Qatar, where homosexual relations can land you five years in prison, and 1,500 accounts are from Turkey. And here in the U.S., the new civil rights movement reports the Louisiana KKK has been distributing recruitment flyers throughout the state. Here's station WWL-TV with more. Sonia Chavez was stunned to spot this in her Mandeville driveway Saturday morning. It's hurtful. It's scary. Again, I have a little boy, they have neighbors, they have kids. Several other neighbors in the Hidden Pine subdivision also found the plastic bags with a rock or candy and a flyer from what it claims is the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. In addition to the racist and anti-gay message, the flyer gives a website and a phone number with an automated message that leads back to what appears to be a KKK chapter in North Carolina. 
save our land, join the Klan, white power. The website provides several other flyers for anyone to print and distribute in their communities. The outrage over this flyer went beyond those who received it locally. I mean, I guess it's kind of repulsive, you know? I mean, I, I don't discriminate against any groups, and I don't feel that anyone living around here should be discriminated against either. So. I'm extremely hurt by it. As a member of the gay community, I just think it shows the ignorance of society still. These flyers have been popping up in communities all across the country all summer. In some reports, the organization behind them claims that they're part of a recruiting effort. Locally, in June, town leaders in Pearl River were made aware that these flyers were found on cars in a gym parking lot, but no report was made. Today, the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office is investigating this weekend's discoveries. There's no doubt they're trying to deliver a hateful message, and we take it very serious. But at this point, we have to talk to our victim. Um, we have to be able to determine a lot of things, including how it got there, when it got there, when she discovered it. People in this neighborhood have created their own message for whoever left the flyers. We're not interested. Ashley Roderick, Eyewitness News. The local FBI office says it is monitoring the situation for any possible federal violations. And here locally, Calabash, a festival for gourds, art, and the garden will happen on Sunday, October 4th from 1 to 5 p.m. Food for Thought, in collaboration with the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, will present the 15th annual Calabash. This is Sonoma County's most colorful and inspiring harvest event. Calabash, named Best Fundraiser by Readers of the North Bay Bohemian for the last three years, features a silent auction and fine gourd art, along with tours of the Food for Thought's beautiful organic gardens, which will be at their peak. Guests at Calabash can enjoy a sumptuous array of fine food and wine from Sonoma County's Bountiful Harvest, and live music played on handmade gourd instruments. The event will also feature a sale of unique garden art and book art and an exclusive selection of food. Tickets are $45 in advance, $50 the day of the event, and can be purchased on their website at www.fftfoodbank.org. Now here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, August 24th, and every Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Petaluma Health Center will host an LGBT support group at 1179 North McDowell Boulevard in Petaluma. And also on Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Marin AIDS Project hosts their Mix It Up monthly mixer at the Four Point Sheridan 1010 Northgate Drive in San Rafael. And on Tuesday at 1.30 p.m., the Santa Rosa Senior Group will meet at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation at the Glacier Center. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from OutBeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. This last year, we've shared several stories and interviews with you about the drug Truvada and its use as a prep by men who have sex with men. But getting the drug out into our community has been pretty challenging. Our first guest tonight has taken this challenge on in Los Angeles. And here to tell us more about this huge effort is Brian Pendleton. Brian, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm excited to hear about this program and the funding that you're provided for PrEP. It's really, I mean, it's such an essential thing for our community. But before we get to that, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in PrEP. Well, I mean, I've obviously I'm in the gay community here in Los Angeles and unfortunately know uh, many people that have become HIV positive. I've uh, I had a partner that passed away from AIDS uh, and 
APLA, uh, AIDS Project Los Angeles, and the Gay and Lesbian Center here in LA are, are both really on the forefront of providing services to those who need it here. Uh, so uh, when APLA decided to um, open up a, me- a health center in Baldwin Hills, which is south Los Angeles, Chad Goldman and I were happy to help fund the first PrEP clinic, which provides uh, counseling and hopefully PrEP to people that, that need it and who don't really have access to it. Uh, so helping people with insurance, helping people uh, get on to studies, uh, however we can get Truvada in the hands of people, we're really trying to do it. Wow. And and so how did you first hear about, how did you first discover uh, Truvada, and where did you learn the information about it? And it seems like it's such a new thing, but and yet it's, been, it's a drug that's been around for a while. Yeah, I mean, I believe the drug was, start, was, you know, was taken by uh, people with HIV. It just became standard protocol like in the early 2000s. Uh, and, uh, and honestly, I don't recall exactly where I heard about the study, but when I did hear, well, the FDA approval, but when I did hear about the FDA approval, I thought, wow, this is too good to be true, because, you know, how many of our brothers and sisters, you know, were desperate for what was, you know, hopefully a magic blue pill, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And, and so when I read about it, I was absolutely astounded. And then when I found out that there was already sort of resistance in the community to this medical protocol, I was just shocked. So, so Chad, who's my husband, and I, um, you know, talked about how could we, how could we help? Because uh, having having known someone that uh, had a partner that had died of of AIDS, uh, watching somebody go through that, it's terrible. And and to know that uh, there was a division in our community about whether this tool should be made available was was heartbreaking. And and people know who we are. I mean, LA is a big city, but you know, we have a lot of friends and. And we thought we could make a difference. We reached out to um, Craig Thompson of AIDS Project Los Angeles and others, and we're surprised to find out that they were hesitant, understandably hesitant, uh, but hesitant nonetheless because there wasn't sort of a, a groundswell for it. Uh, and there were some, like Michael Weinstein, who um, leads up AIDS Healthcare Foundation, who was absolutely opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this strange uh, infighting in our community about who, who should... Um, who should have access to it, and I just, I just thought that was terrible. So um, I went to uh, Dr. Tony Mills. He's my doctor here in uh, Los Angeles, uh, and found out that um, he has just begun prescribing it, um, went through the proper protocol, and there's some very important things you should know about it. Uh, before you take it, uh, you have to get tested for HIV uh, before you can get on Truvada uh, if, if you're negative and you want to use it as PrEP. Uh, because you don't want to be taking it while you're seroconverting. Apparently, that's very bad. Uh, so, you know, went to the doctor a few times, had all the tests, um, and then got on it. And uh, the first thing I did was made a Facebook post about it, and <laughs> I was surprised. A lot of great comments and then a lot of sh- uh, slut-shaming. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, uh, how, how dare I talk publicly about having sex without a condom, or how dare I talk about, you know, uh, having multiple partners. And quite frankly, I wasn't talking about any of that. All I did was say um, that I was on PrEP. So it was clear that there was a, a major division in the community about it. Well, it's interesting. We've done some stories about those misperceptions and talked to some guys on the East Coast. In fact, talked to a, a good friend in L.A. and then some, some guys up here just to kind of see where's this resistance coming from. I've even heard it from the medical profession up here, this idea that somehow if I prescribe PrEP for my patients, all of a sudden they're just going to abandon use of condoms. 
Right, and uh, I, I think I think that they shouldn't be thinking about that. It, it, I don't think that they think about that that when they uh, provide a, a woman with uh, birth control, and they should not be thinking about that when they're providing people with uh, prep. Uh, it, it's 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 just another tool in the toolbox, and if um, uh, zero zero um, discordant. Uh, uh, couples want to use it, or if it, it, it's just none of their business. What should be their business is making sure that they're giving people access to all the tools. We have access to condoms. Um, we have access to Truvada as prep, um, and that is great because uh, it is the next best thing right now to a cure. And if if we were all on it, and if more people were on it, the infection rates would continue to plummet. So right. I think I think that it should be made more available. Well, the, and the evidence is clearly speaking for itself. You know, you can have whatever you, opinion you want as a doctor or a member of the community, but the evidence so far is is proving out to be showing that Truvada is very effective. It is effective, and and I think the, I think the thing that we should remember is that I, of course, I, I grew up with AIDS, and the face of what AIDS used to look like um, before medication was able to get it under control, but twenty five year olds didn't. Uh, and they don't, and they don't know. And an AIDS diagnosis, gratefully, is no longer a death sentence, but it's it's still terrible. And I think the byproduct of that is sort of less of a an interest in having um, sex with a condom. And we should still teach about you know condom condom is an option. You know, you, use that condom. It's it's safe. Um, but we should also teach uh, about being able to use prep and Truvada. Uh, it it does work. And people should have a choice. Right. Well, you're obviously very passionate about this. Uh, so, <laughs> obviously. So, t- so talk more about your philanthropy. I mean, you're really making this available to men in L.A. Tell us more. we just very close with, with the people at AIDS Project Los Angeles. And when they use funds that they got from the um, Affordable Health Care Act, uh, they decided to open up a Baldwin Hills clinic. And in that clinic, uh, they're providing wonderful care dental care and other medical care to people in South LA that otherwise don't have access to anything medically related. Uh, so we were really honored um, to find out that they would take a, a gift from us and begin the Pendleton Goldman Prep Clinic, which we've continued to fund by just, you know, asking our friends to donate money, you know, every now and then we'll throw a pool party and we'll raise money and people will just make, make gifts to it uh, anonymously or unsolicited. Uh, and and we're really we're really pleased about that. And the exciting part is is that people in Baldwin Hills and South LA now have access to something uh, that and APLA is doing fantastic work. But that is literally just one little place um, in a very gigantic nation. And and we have so much more work to do. Uh, especially as a you know moderately affluent white guy, I have access to great insurance. I have access to Truvada, and it and it doesn't break the bank if I have to pay for it. But the people who need it most have the least access to it, and it we owe it to them uh, to to make this kind of protocol available to them. So if I understand it right, then if a member of the gay community who maybe doesn't have insurance goes right. to this clinic, they can get Truvada at no cost. They, they can get access to it if it's available to them. I mean, APOA couldn't afford to, to pay for Truvada for everybody that, that needs it. But they know how to get people onto Medicare and Medi-Cal. They know how to get people onto um, sort of Ob- Obamacare programs. They know what studies are going on in L.A. County and the surrounding areas in order to get guys access to it, to it that way. They're not a pill dispensing machine. I wish they could. That would be fantastic. Uh, but they're, what they're really doing is helping people navigate 
the existing sort of waters to to find it where it can be available. And then oftentimes um, they are they are underprivileged enough to where they can qualify for government subsidized health care, which will provide um, Truvada, uh, which will provide PrEP, thanks to Obamacare. How fantastic. So it's the front door. It's a free free entrance to be yep. able to access those services, and then they yep. sort of broker the services. It's, it's a front door, and it's an absolutely beautiful model that other organizations around the country should be uh, should be really looking into and, and following. And it is one of the wonderful byproducts of, of Obamacare. It's terrific. Uh, you know, yeah. we're so lucky here in Sonoma County. We have an organization called Face to Face that does a lot of the same kind of work, and they were They've become very grounded here because in the AIDS crisis, so many men moved from San Francisco up to Sonoma County and the Russian River literally right. to die. Right. And, and so they've been providing this tremendous care. But as you say, that's not the case in so many big places and so many small places throughout the country. Absolutely. I, mean, I love that we can do a lot of wonderful work right here in our own backyard and in Los Angeles. But you know, what about the kids in Alabama and Tennessee and Mississippi that just the idea of a comprehensive health clinic serving gay men and their interests uh, is just a dream. Right. We have a lot of work to do. I mean, even, even today, like recently, I was at my dentist office, and they asked me what medications I was taking, and I, I wrote down Truvada, and Truvada only. And it was sort of a surprise. Oh, you can take that? Uh, what is that? Are you, are you HIV positive? Well, no, I'm not HIV positive. I take it as PrEP, and it, it prevents me from contracting HIV, and it's, it's a new idea to them. I, we just have so much work to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and talk about L.A. County a little bit. I, it looks like that they're being pretty progressive, too, in trying to maybe expand what's available from the federal government in terms of providing Truvada. Well, I mean, uh, Sheila Kuehl, um, who's a L.A. County su- supervisor, is, has introduced a bill to, to do a lot more with PrEP and to help find ways to make it available. I don't know all the details of the bill that she's introduced, uh, but it's absolutely a story worth telling. I mean, L.A. County is a gigantic county. It may even be the largest county in the U.S., and, and for her, we're lucky to have an advocate like her on board. And as long as some of those naysayers, some of those slut-shamers, uh, some of those people that, that think they should be able to control how we have sex stay out of the mix. I could see the bill flying through and, and be, uh, becoming a tremendous help uh, to the people of L.A. County. It's a pretty sharp contrast, would you say, from the early 80s when no one in government, including the President of the United States, would even say the word AIDS? Oh, I mean, we've, I mean it has been an exciting time to live. I'm so proud of my friends who have been on the board of AIDS Project Los Angeles and Human Rights Campaign and Victory Fund and all of those other organizations who've really helped change the hearts and minds of Americans. I mean, yes, ultimately it was the Supreme Court that sort of gave us the right, quote-unquote, to marry. And yes, it was finally the president saying the word gay or homosexual at the State of the Union or his inauguration. But it, it, that wasn't it. It was the work that all of these people around the country did, all the money that was donated, all the volunteer hours that have really changed the paradigm in, in 10 or 15 years. It's been absolutely epic to be a part of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So talk about what your personal goals are. What, what do you really want to see happen in terms of a timeline for the investment that you're making in the local center there? You know, if you could, if you could create the perfect vision, what's it look like and how long is it going to take to get there? Well, look, I, I mean, there's much smarter people than me strategizing about the tactics of it. But what I would like to see in less than 12 months is, is for everybody in the United States 
to know what Truvada and PrEP is, just period. I want them to know what it is and not be afraid of it. And I want to quickly get beyond this idea that people who take Truvada as PrEP are sluts. Just like women had to face when they first started taking uh, birth control, I want any kind of stigma attached to Truvada eliminated as quickly as possible. Because in that, people will know to ask for it. They'll know it's available. They know that it's an infection-preventing measure that could literally change their life. That sounds like a pretty worthy goal. I think it's worth it, and I think there's a lot of very smart people working to achieve that goal. And, and I really, people like you who just get the words out, even if words from both sides, so people can make up their own minds about it, it is so important. Right. And you're right. There is a lot of misinformation out there, even at the medical, professional medical level. Um, but the data speaks for itself. And I think all it takes is a little bit of time to learn and to research for yourself so that, as you can say, you can make that decision for yourself. Yeah. For, for our listeners that want to learn more about your organization and the work that you're doing, where can they go? Well, look, I think the best place they can go is to APLA.org. Go to their website and look at the work they're doing. And if they're so inclined to do so, make a donation. It's not the crisis that it was in the 80s, thank God. I was just thinking about this today. I, I'm seeing people on Facebook get old age diseases. And, um, and while those aren't fun to deal with, it's not dying of AIDS early, which is incredibly amazing. But as the disease has become more of a chronic issue rather than a deadly issue, funding has slowly receded. Uh, but now we really have a moment. We have a moment to make money available, to get Truvada um, out into the hands of people as a tool and really change this infection rate. We could eradicate this disease if we just get beyond the debate and get it into the hands of the people that need it. And that is the key point with that, right? It's to lower the risk and lower the transmission rate to the point where it doesn't get transited anymore and goes away. Absolutely. Brian, it's been great talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us tonight on Outbeat News in Depth. And thank you so much for uh, airing this important topic. I really appreciate it. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County. 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. If you've ever suspected you've been exposed to HIV and want to know whether you're carrying the virus that could lead to AIDS, there's a place you can be tested for free, confidentially, and anonymously with results in just 20 minutes. Call face-to-face at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. We want you to know your status. And speaking of face-to-face, joining us now is the Director of Development for Face-to-Face, Dennis Agnos. Dennis, welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. Thanks, Craig. Always good to be here. And it's always a pleasure to have you on to find out what's going on with Face-to-Face. And clearly, one of my very favorite fundraising events every year is Art for Life, and it's coming up next month in September. Tell us what you have planned for this year. You're right. Coming up on Saturday, September 19th, it's the 28th annual Art for Life. Um, second year that we're holding it at the Spastopol Center for the Arts. We're really, really excited about that beautiful location and gallery space. Um, for your listeners who don't know much about Art for Life, um, it is Sonoma County's longest-running art auction with net proceeds every year benefiting face-to-face, whose mission it is to end HIV in Sonoma County. In those 28 years, we have raised well over $2 million for HIV prevention and care services program. So it's a pretty longstanding, spectacular event that happens. So that's $2 million just from this event? Over the 28 years, yes. Holy cow. More than $2 million. That's great. And the history of it, Greg, um, is 
really remarkable. You know, back in in the eighties when the event was um, first introduced, a bunch of artists got together and said, "We we want to help. What can we do? What if we you know what if we donate some of our, our artwork and have an auction and we raise a few dollars? Will will that help?" And that really is the the genesis of of it all. And that first event was held um, at the Flamingo Hotel. And all in one day, we cataloged the art, accepted the art, installed it in the ballroom, invited the guests. Everybody came. We sold the art. We took it down, and we had the very first Art for Life. You know, these years later now, 20-some-odd years later, 28 years later, it's a much different event. More than 150 artists from Sonoma County, all local artists, participate. And we have been collecting their art for months now um, and their, their willingness to continue to participate. And we build a really strong catalog of unique pieces, both paintings and sculptures and jewelry and photography. And folks can come to the art center on the 19th and bid on those donated pieces. And as I mentioned, all the, all the proceeds come right back to face-to-face programs. I can't imagine how they did it all in one day because <laughs> it really does feel like you're walking through a, a standing stationary art gallery. I mean, it's absolutely stunning, incredible. And who are some of the local artists that are going to be featured in the collection this year? Oh boy, we've got so many returning artists year after year. There are there are many that have been with us for I, I dare I say probably the 28 years. There's photographers like John Hershey and Mark Watt. Pastel painters like Tamara Sanchez and Clark Mitchell. Clark Mitchell has the distinction of being um, known as uh, a master pastelist. Um, there's glass artists like Laurence. Laurence is one of our founding artists of Art for Life, so she's been with us for 28 years. Um, and another glass artist like Bronca Harris, just to, to name a few. Tamara Sanchez's work is is absolutely beautiful. Tony and I are really lucky to have a couple of her pieces that we got at Art for Life hanging on our walls. So she's definitely one of our yes, favorites. That's great. So I know in years past, too, that in addition to beautiful photography and paintings and, and whatnot, things to hang on your wall, there are also other kinds of art, yard art, jewelry. Talk about some of the pieces that are lined up for this year. It's fun and interesting. We we're building that catalog now. So if I can make the shameless plug, I will. I'll invite your listeners to go to artforlifef2f.com and to check out the gallery um, to see all of the artists and, and what is there. Um, there's a beautiful piece right now. It's an enameled copper cuff, which is you know a piece of jewelry by Ava Austin. Um, and she just does this incredible... Um, Blazing and an overlay of white gold with tiny glass marbles. You know, that's the kind of detail that our Sonoma County artists put into their work. And we're just so lucky that they want to contribute a piece to, to Art for Life. So artists like Ava do jewelry. Um, some of our sculptors, um, for your, your art lovers that are listening, Susandra Spicer, um, and some potters like Cheryl Costantini and Mikio Matsumoto. Um, Cheryl and Mikio are um, in partnership and, and a couple. And Cheryl studied in Japan to learn traditional Japanese pottery and brought that back to the States. And you can see in her pieces that, that beautiful infusion of that traditional artistry. 
Well, you know, this event is so fun. I, I often forget it's a fundraiser. And the point is to raise money for all of the great work that Face to Face does. Talk about where the money is going to go and the kind of programming that you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so our prevention programs um, that we offer free of charge and all year long include uh, complimentary either anonymous or confidential HIV testing that we do in our office. It's the rapid testing, so you get your results in, in 20 minutes. And we do that Tuesday through Fridays. Those are our office hours, um, 9 to 4.30 at our, our office in Santa Rosa. Um, you know, the best best way to know about your status, right, is to have your HIV test. Right. Uh, and then there's another prevention program that Art for Life supports. It's our Speakers Bureau. So each year during um, the academic season, we have volunteers and some of the professional staff go into middle high schools and um, secondary education classes to talk about HIV. It's kind of a, an HIV 101, the basics of it. Um, also talking a little bit about prevention and transmission. And one of those speakers, it's usually a, a pair of speakers, one of those speakers is an individual who is HIV positive that likes to um, share his or her story about life as being HIV positive, what it was like when they found out, what it was like to tell their family or their partner. Um, and it really gives the students a, a, a well-rounded perspective on HIV and, um, and living with HIV if you happen to be HIV positive. Well, and they're terrific. And I can speak from personal experience. Megan Murphy, who I think is brilliant, comes and speaks to my LGBT studies class and, and provides just just so much great information for those students. I remember one of the first Art for Life events that I went to, uh, I stared for a long time at that, that stone spiral sculpture or stone spiral installation, I think you call it, where each stone represented one person who had died and and. I've noticed over the years that the number of stones being added to the sculpture is fortunately dropping off. Um, but it's still a very powerful display. Talk about that a little bit more and how you're honoring that. If you go to the Art for Life website, um, which is artforlifef2f.com, one of the photos that cycle through um, the website is a photo of a red round table with the black stone pebbles on it, the, the river rock. Um, and it is representative of the number of people since 1983 that have died from HIV in Sonoma County. So we start with three of the river pebbles in the middle of the table. There were three deaths in 1983. And we work our way out through 2014. And each of the years is divided by a really beautiful bone. Every year we've always had a moment of silence for the individuals in Sonoma County who have died from HIV, we will do that again. But we're looking at this installation in a different way. HIV in 2015 is different than it was in 1983. People are living longer, healthier lives. People are dying. People that we serve have passed away, but they haven't passed away from HIV. So it's almost curious for us to look at that installation in the same way anymore. Um, now we look at it and we realize that there's still much work to do. And as professionals and member members of the community and people living with HIV or not living with HIV, we're standing on the shoulders of all those people that passed since 1983. And, you know, we're going to continue this fight 
in their in their honor and to make sure that others don't have to suffer the way that they did. Where can people go to get information and purchase tickets? Yeah, so Face to Face's website um, has information and a link to it. It's um, www.f2f.org. And then Art for Life has its own website, which is artforlifef2f.com. Um, and f- tickets to the auction are $50. That includes your admission to the auction on September 19th. We'll have great afternoon hors d'oeuvres and I like to say cool libations to enjoy. So some nice wine and, and, and waters and, and, and drinks for everybody. Um, and, you know, the $50 goes to a really good cause. It goes to face-to-face helping us to end HIV in Sonoma County while we take care of those people that are living with HIV and AIDS. Terrific. Once again, the event is going to take place this year on Saturday, September 19th. And... You have a couple of tickets you're going to allow us to give away tonight. I do. I do. We would love to have two new fresh faces from the community at Art for Life. So please have your callers call in. Let's give away two tickets to the auction. That sounds good to me. So we'll give them to caller number two at 584-2020. That's 584-2020. Give us a call here at KRCB and we will give you two tickets to Art for Life. Dennis Agnes, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Good luck at this year's event. I know it's going to be spectacular. Thanks, Greg. Really appreciate your help. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth here on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Earlier this month, I saw an article on one of the websites operated by the Matthew Shepard Foundation known as MatthewsPlace.com. Now, if you haven't visited this site, it's really great, and it offers young people in particular information about contemporary issues such as sex education in schools. There's so many issues out there, and here to talk with us more about just a few of them is Sean McEntee, Communications Associate for the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Sean, welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome to have you here. And before we get into talking about all of the LGBT issues and the LGBT youth issues we're going to talk about, you're fairly new to the Matthew Shepard Foundation, though you've been there for how long now? I've been here for, I think, 10 months. I started October 6th, 2014. Okay. So not quite a year, but getting there. So you're getting close to being a seasoned veteran. Yeah, I, I guess you could call it that, yeah. Well, before we get into talking about these issues, start out by telling us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up and how did you get involved with the Matthew Shepard Foundation? Yeah, I, I actually grew up in a, in a small town, small rural town on the border of Michigan and Canada along the river there, about 35 miles north of Detroit. Um, spent a, you know, spent 18 years of my life there. Then I went to school, left when I was 18 immediately. And I went to school, did my freshman year at the University of Maryland, right outside DC, spent some time, kind of a year doing the East Coast thing, and then packed everything up and finished my time out uh, in Chicago. Uh, and then I graduated from Columbia College Chicago last May, so more mm-hmm. than a year ago, and immediately packed up my stuff and came here. And I've been in Denver ever since. Then uh, freelanced around a little bit. I did, uh, before I got started here, I dabbled in like website development and administration. I did some freelance social media marketing, all that. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the job at Matthew Shepard and spent a month stocking the foundation, basically, until they hired me. So yeah, it all worked out. And I've been here ever since. And I'm, I'm really glad that I get to do what I do. And you're a journalism major. I was. I studied broadcast journalism, emphasis in radio. But uh, the way I curated everything is I did mostly digital production for everything I did. I used to do digital spots on radio. I did some live segments, but I actually ran all of the web productions for our college radio station and did uh, 
some web producing for a documentary we did, a radio documentary on heroin use among mm-hmm. teens. That was, uh, we focused on like Illinois and all the surrounding suburbs there. So that was a lot of rewarding work I did. And then uh, I came here and I, you know, I do communications and media at the foundation. So I'm able to apply pretty much everything I did directly into my job on a day-to-day basis and really working to broaden the horizons here and get more stuff going. Terrific. Well, let's let's hit one of the issues. I mean, one of the things that I saw posted on uh, matthewsplace.com was an article about how schools are really lacking in sex education, particularly for LGBT youth. And that's probably no big surprise. But what was alarming to me about that article is the rate of pregnancy among LGBT youth. What are we doing wrong? You know, as, as far as the idea of like what are schools doing wrong or what are yeah. we as a society doing wrong? Well, I think you're right. You bring up a good point that I think the responsibility falls on both, but we're missing the boat here, right? I mean, the traditional ideas of teaching abstinence clearly are not working. And how are LGBT kids having pregnancy issues at such an alarming rate? The overall spectrum of this you have to look at, we'll, we'll kind of start big and go into it. But the biggest thing when it comes to the, the idea of the sexual education and the curriculum for that and the absence of really any LGBT inclusiveness starts with we don't have a centralized system in the United States as opposed to other countries where everything is broken up one, you know, state by state. And then there's kind of this trickle down effect of then it becomes regional and then it's district by district. And then you have a lot where parents and families are very involved and directly influence the involvements of the classroom. So the way I want to approach this question is if you compare it to marriage equality, which, you know, recently huge landmark ruling and all that, but you have to look at the shift in public opinion and cultural acceptance and really see how slow that is and how it's little bits at a time where this has been a prevalent issue for years, decades. It's been completely absent for the most part, even aside from LGBT-specific curriculum, just sexual education in general, switching from an abstinence-only model to anything that's more scientific or getting into the serious issues of things is that's still taking time. You have to look at it like, you know, anything that's discriminatory, civil rights related, it's little bits at a time that happen. Compared to marriage equality, you had civil unions and other places recognizing it leading up to this huge landmark moment where it's just all over the place. And this is going to open a lot of doors as far as the conversations we have. One point I have that I found interesting is when you look at the different states, some of them, even that mandate, it still teach this where it's within the realm where sex is happening within the realm of a marriage. And up until a couple weeks ago, nationwide, the idea of a marriage only applied to a man and the woman where it automatically excluded the community to begin with. Sure. Well, I know here in California, you know, as you mentioned, the curriculum is really heavily regulated. I think it's in fifth grade now, teachers are allowed to mention the word homosexual and reference the idea that girls can have relationships with girls and boys can have relationships with boys, and that's okay. But there's absolutely zero conversation about safe sex practices, for example. So are you hearing anything about the challenges that LGBT youth are facing in terms of becoming educated? And if so, what's the community doing? Have you seen any examples where the the LGBT community is sort of picking up the slack here and providing information to youth about things like HIV prevention? But in this particular article, how to avoid getting pregnant? Yeah, I mean, there there are countless organizations regionally, you know, throughout every state that focus solely on stuff like HIV prevention. And um, getting properly tested. And, you know, if you look at any center, even any LGBT resource center throughout the country, they're constantly marketing themselves as a safe place for people to go who have questions, 
who have fears that they have contracted something that it's a huge neighborhood community based resource. When it comes to, you know, more nationwide, that, that is a harder part because it's not centralized and you, what you do in one place isn't going to affect another in the long run. But uh, the one thing we're hearing is that it's not an absence of kids today being unaware or unquestioning of what's happening. It's a, a lot of times, too, is when people are setting these curriculums that there are people who don't have answers for them. They were never trained or taught to be in this position or answering these questions, which is the overall big problem. So it's not it's not a lack of understanding on the kids' part of they want to know something or they're interested in finding it out. There's just, there's a lack of authority that can help them in their day-to-day lives that they're familiar with. And then it becomes a matter of making sure foundations like ours, for example, make themselves available to these kids to make sure that they know they're heard, that their concerns are heard, and that there's someone out there, whether it's us or through us by word of mouth or a connection that we make and kind of this digital networking that we do, that someone has answers and can really tackle their questions and make sure that they're living safe, authentic lives as much as they can. Sure. And, and of course, that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, here we are on the dawn of a new school year. A lot of LGBT youth are going back to school. Some are going to high school. And, and those can be some scary times under the best of conditions. And things like marriage have come along and things are hopefully getting better. But what are you hearing at the foundation in terms of the challenges that LGBT youth are still facing today? Yeah, bullying is always going to be a number one that we're hearing. There's always going to be those who have already come out or they're being bullied on their perceived orientation or identity, anything like that, it's still huge. It's it's an epidemic where even of like what in the past day or so, another attempt to um, add anti-discrimination for uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in schools against kids, it, it failed again, but it came close in the Senate. It lost out by a small margin to the votes it needed. But you're always going to have kind of the fear of being themselves once they come out, or you have you know, anxiety about subjecting yourself to an unwelcoming or unaccepting atmosphere because we were all in school and kids at one point. There's nowhere else to really go. Like you are with these other kids and you're with these peers and you're in those hallways for four years and you're there and you can't make it work. And then it's not going to be a safe space. And that affects people academically, mentally, socially, all of those things. But the one thing I do want to point out is that the stuff we're hearing as far as the challenges that LGBT students are facing are not always negative. The challenges we often hear too, you know, as years goes on and more rulings happen and more acceptance is made, is they're facing challenges that they want to help. They want to create safer spaces and there are people who want to be better advocates and better allies. And they're contacting us and they want to know how to do that. They're very interested in starting GSAs at their school or making sure that their friend who just came out isn't feeling threatened when they walk down the hall every day. So it's kind of a yin and yang that's happening where you still have that negative, that unaccepting thing, and that fear of coming out, that fear of being yourself. But on the flip side of the coin, you have kids who are very knowledgeable that it's happening and they're really willing to do something about it. And I think one of the points that we always make and the reason that we're so open to hear what youth are saying is... Personally, I think one of the worst mistakes you can make is underestimating what young people can understand if they're given the opportunity to ask certain questions or have certain conversations. So in a school environment, you're young, you're learning everything, and I think you're put in a position where by default you might feel a little overwhelmed or a little powerless to that. And so we are constantly lending our ear and letting kids know, like, no, you have the resources to do this. You have people to go to who can help you achieve the goal you want. It's not out of the realm of possibility to provide toward the 
progress that needs to be made. Well, that's really encouraging to hear. And so talk a little bit more about then how the foundation is responding to these requests for for help. What kinds of programming or support does the foundation provide? You know, Judy and Dennis are huge ambassadors to the community and for us. You know, they started this foundation to help parents accept their kids for who they are and, you know, really embrace that idea of loving your kids no matter what. And over the years, that has really come to all people of all generations of all communities hearing this message and knowing they're being heard, whether it's speaking with one of us or speaking with Judy and Dennis or hearing us talk about it, um, that, you know, they, they feel less alone. Specifically on the youth efforts, we have a lot that goes on there. We have um, our biggest thing, you know, years ago, uh, the website Matthew's Place, matthewsplace.com. Right. It's really evolved a lot since its beginnings, but its origins were just on creating a resource site and create a virtual LGBT resource center for people who didn't have access to one at their home, in their towns or in their communities, and, you know, didn't have the resources to drive 200 miles to go to a youth center. And that really evolved over time into a blog and content-driven site where we give the reins to these youth and we have these bloggers write about the issues they're experiencing that they see that they think are important and that they want to talk about. So our editor, Christine Romero, she, you know, is at the helm of things and, you know, she's the editor of it and kind of curating some of the content and does her own writing. But for the most part, it's what these kids are interested in and what they're hearing. They're the ones who are in that environment. None of us are anymore. I'm not that far out of it, but I couldn't speak as to what a high schooler is going through or feel like I would be an expert more than a 17 year old who's currently going through it. So we really give them the voice that they feel they don't have elsewhere. And then their voice resonates throughout all of the readership we have and throughout all these communities across the country. And it really lets people know that there, there is someone who shares their view or someone who's going through what they're going through. And just that one act of someone not feeling alone is huge. Mm-hmm. And we've had some of the bloggers on the show before, and they're just, they're remarkable young people. I don't want to call them kids because they are so, they are so advanced. Uh, even though they're still in their teens, but they're remarkable, remarkable people. Give us some examples then of some of the topics that you've seen come up that have maybe touched you personally that that you were surprised about or that you found were, you know, really forward-thinking ideas. I think recently there's been a lot of exploring other identities. Like most recently, there's even one on Demite sexuality. As time goes on, and even speaking somebody as young as I am, you quickly lose touch as to what's happening. And so you're kind of reminded of all these conversations that you never had the chance to be exposed to. And you also have a lot of these kids are... Uh, so I'm going to keep using kids because I'm 23 and I feel like they're kids, but um, <laughs> we're all kids, really. They're parts of the LGBT community, but they're also people who struggle with eating disorders, with struggle with disabilities, with strong, struggle with mental health and depression and anxiety and all these other things where it's much bigger than just focusing on what is the community facing, but more of really what are the issues that youth face? And there's a LGBT spin on it, of course. But it really is just youth expressing everything that they need to express in a very intelligent and articulate way. And I'm very surprised at the adversity that some of these youth have overcome and feel like they're much stronger than I was at their age, or at least much more self-aware as to what to do about it or what it means. And it's, it's very inspiring to keep doing that. And it just gets bigger. We have people from all over tackling a lot of different things. And sex, we have a sex columnist now. Joshua Ortiz is um, going to be writing about all things. He had a, his first post, I think, last week. And it's really our introduction to giving people the education that they're not getting in school. That's the biggest part about Massey's Place is we do live in a time where the absence of something in a classroom can be found online. It's just a matter of 
people being able to determine what's credible and what's not because there's such an oversaturation of content on the internet. Right. And so we really present Matthew's Place as a go-to LGBT resource center, both emotionally, um, sexually, all this other, all these other things mentally that they need to tackle and it really replicates that safe space that they need. Well, that's fantastic. That could certainly be a really good answer to, you know, the first issue we were talking about, which is this gap in education that's out there. And I, you know, I have to, I've looked, obviously looked at Matthew's Place a bunch of times and I would encourage older listeners to, to check it out because I think the stories and, and the writing that the youth bloggers are putting on there can be really inspiring. It's really good quality stuff. I want to go back to the coming out issue that you mentioned a little bit. You came out at 16, right? Yes. Here's the thing about the coming out issue. And I feel like everyone who has their first one later on realizes that it's not a one-time thing. (laughs) So I I say that I think for the first time to myself and to a few people was at 16, but it continues to this day. It's a constant rhetoric I have with people. So do you see the struggle for young people being different than the struggle that you experienced or that you continue to experience? No. We had a discussion about this the other day, a few of us at the foundation, and we, we all agreed that it's not a generational thing. It's not a, you know, I had a harder time coming out. The, the coming out experience really is unique to the individual. That is, as long as we have this predominantly heteronormative society that we live in, kids who are questioning their orientation or their identity are always going to have that coming out moment, that, that self-awareness, that realization where they want to tell people. I think there is a trend of it happening sooner than it used to. I think there are a lot of kids who are five, six years old, 10, 12, who are very comfortable and aware and feel fine identifying as LGBT, anything within that spectrum. And I think they're more open to having conversations about it than maybe I was when I was that age. But the biggest thing about the coming out experience is not so much the saying it out loud or telling someone, it's the immediate aftermath of what's the consequence for this person for coming out. And I think that hasn't changed as much over the years for a lot of people. I think there is still a lot of resistance to feeling safe. I think a lot of people still feel uncomfortable after that. And also people who come out at different times experience different backlash to that too. Sure. Well, and you would hope and think that with the mayor's decision and sort of the very quick evolution of LGBT civil rights that seems to be happening, that it might make it easier, that the the country as a whole might be more accepting and therefore the, the pushback. But then you see efforts being made to, I'm going to call it pushback to the marriage equality movement, bills that seek to protect religious freedoms that are really legalized forms of discrimination. And so for a young person who's looking at this all happen in this fight back and forth, it's got to be pretty scary. Yeah, it's a little, it's scary and it's also intimidating to feel like you're constantly the topic of conversation. You know, when it's in the news cycle all the time and it's these big things and the pushback back and forth... And, you know, I grew up with this, too, of always feeling like I'm being referred to in the third person by everyone else in the world. Like, I'm I'm some other, like, I'm being talked about like I'm not in the room and I'm standing right there. And I think that can, it, it can cause a lot of hesitation with people. It can kind of cause this reverse questioning. It it does have this psychological effect on people, and it does, it can hurt. It, it can lead to some damage with that and make people feel less comfortable. But I think definitively we can agree that the idea of LGBT people being more normal and in the mainstream and much more accepting is without question. I think, you know, marriage equality is just one example of that, but it's definitely quickly rising to where it should be. Well, let's hope it continues. 
So talk about what's coming up with the Matthew Shepard Foundation. What kinds of things are you working on now and what can we look forward to here in the next year or so? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'll start with kind of our, our youth-based stuff. Is obviously Matthew's place is always continuing and evolving, getting more writers, more topics. Um, the other thing too is our our, our Laramie Project program, where uh, Susan Burke, our Laramie Project specialist, she goes to schools and helps provide like a historical context. She organizes these community talkbacks to address hate in the community and really works with the youth involved in these and also other community theaters. But um, for the third year in a row now, Susan has worked with the school in Queens actually where, you know, she Skypes with them and they're actually reading the Laramie Project and they watch the, uh, the HBO movie and it's part of their curriculum. It's part of uh, their English program in these high schools. So it's being taught and she provides like the, the personal historical context to that. And so that's kind of evolving a lot. And we're also well on our way, you know, this year we launched our Hate Crimes Reporting and Prevention Initiative. And that's a huge undertaking from when the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act was passed and now really circling around and focusing on getting local law enforcement agencies educated and participating because participating in reporting is not voluntary. Um, and just really doing our best to make those ties between these law enforcement agencies and the LGBT community to make it more open for people to not only go to police officers and report these crimes, but for these officers to respond in the right way and know the procedure and know what they're doing. Um, our annual honors gala coming up, which is always a good time and you know time to reflect and this year i think will be particularly exciting with all the history that's been made with the marriage equality we're going to have a lot to a lot to celebrate but also a lot of momentum to convince people to move forward and tackle all that we have left to do well and that's that's a very good point because marriage is not the end all to our civil rights movement it's really just one major step I think the best example of that is the idea that you could get married on a Sunday and in 29 states you can still be fired on Monday because you married the person that you love who happens to be of the same gender and in that state it's lawful to fire someone for being gay. Yes. And you know and there's also still when it comes to uh, anti-hate crime anti-discrimination policies in certain states there's still a few that don't have any at all. <clears throat> there's still some that don't include sexual orientation and gender identity and the thing that, that's great about the marriage equality decision is it reminds us of the progress we've made and everything that we've taken to achieve to get to that point. You know, those we've lost, those who have really led the fight in this. But then you also have to sit back and reflect on, you look at everything else we still have left to accomplish. And it's great that it's opened all of these doors to really start talking about these other things. But you have to remember how long marriage equality took. This is, you know, decades and decades and decades of real grassroots efforts to do that. And then you look ahead and people really, I think it resonates when you put it in that perspective of we're not even really close. There's still a lot to be made up for and a lot to get done. For sure. So tell our listeners where they can go to learn about the Matthew Shepard Foundation. If they've lost touch with the story or want to know more about what the work's being done, where do they go? Yeah, you're going to go to, uh, first go to matthewshepard.org. That's the foundation site that's going to have, you know, the foundation's history, Matthew's history, um, everything, you know, we're currently working on. And actually, we have a new site going up and should be accessible and have a lot more information on there for people. We also have matthewsplace.com. That's the youth site. People can go there and read everything there. Um, you can get in touch for people who are interested in submitting. If they have story ideas, you know, never feel afraid to reach out to us. We're always open to hearing that stuff. And also, the thing to... Um, that we're going to plug now too is we have Matt Shepard is a friend of mine. 
the film by Michelle Hosway, who's a friend of Matt, which come later this year, hopefully will be available to stream. But if not, you know, keep an eye out. Matt Shepard is a friend of mine.com tells, you know, really gets in depth into Matthew's life and focuses more on how he lived rather than how he died. And it's still appearing on some screens throughout the country so they can check the website and see if it's coming to a theater near them. Fantastic. And I know it aired last month on logo and probably will be repeated on logo as well. And you're right. It's a terrific film that uh, tells the story, and it also really dispels a lot of the mythology that's sort of evolved over the years. I mean, it's hard to believe it's been 17 years uh, since Matt's murder, but the foundation is still going strong, and that's such a, a strong indication to me of the power of, of his story and, and all of the people that he's touched along the way. Yeah, and I mean, it also speaks to just the sheer power, endurance, and willingness to continue from Judy and Dennis in all of this. And still putting themselves out there to share that story and to continue to share that story and change the hearts and minds of people. Um, the, the film is a great way to remind people that can happen to people you know. This is not some mystical thing or something that only exists in a history textbook. This is These are the people that we live with and the people we work with and <clears throat> share our lives with. You got that right. Well, Sean, it's been great talking with you. We appreciate you being on the show, and I'm looking forward to having you back on and as uh, more issues evolve with LGBT youth and the greater community. Yeah, Greg, thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks tonight to my guests, Brian Pendleton, Dennis Agnos, and Sean McEntee. I'll be back next month with another edition of Outbeat News in Depth, but be sure to tune in next Sunday night for an Outbeat Extra with Gary Carnavelli. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our segment editor is Anthony Garcia. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long.